You're listening to the A Scully Cast, brought to you by www.ascully.com. And here are your hosts, A Scully and Sid Talk. Sid Talk is poorly. Poorly. Let's define poorly. I have a stuffy nose, and I sound bad, worse than I am, and I might have to cough, but you figured out how to cut them all out, so there you go. Yeah, you shouldn't have to listen to cough. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, they will be removed. Hopefully. So. If, we, if only you could do that, like, in real life. Just remove them all from me. That'd be great. Like a, like I wear, like, some special kind of thing in my ear, and whenever it hears it, it just mutes it for me. No, not for you. For me. <laughs> oh, my God. That's no, very very selfless of you. Don't want to just mute it for yourself. Only for me. <laughs> How about if we get rid of my cough? In time, in time. It's not that bad. You've had a cough twice this winter. That's. Have you got pleurisy? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> I've had it. I've had the old pleurisy from the 15th century. Have you got the gout? <coughs> gout is different. The Something gout to do with coughing. Those, the, the gout and the pleurisy, they, <laughs> those sound like um, diseases from the Middle Ages. Definitely. This is not part of the before the after the show discussion, by the way. It isn't, but it is now. <laughs> no, this is the... During the beginning of the show discussion. All right, so moving on to the show. It is Saturday, March the 31st. Happy April Fool's Day tomorrow. Um, We don't ever do an April Fool's, so we won't trick you during this show. You want me to tell them why? Because it's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid. (laughs) Easter Day and uh, April Fool's is on the same day, so we could trick some Christians. (laughs) (laughs) Let's not. Uh, so yeah, it's Saturday, March the 31st. This is after the show. We are a movie review podcast. And this week on episode 524, we are looking at Phantom Thread, a 2017 movie releases on Blu-ray on April the 10th, 2018. So we got this a couple of weeks early, but because it is from my favorite director, Paul Thomas Anderson, we're reviewing it early. So it's a rated R and it is for language, apparently. R for language. And it's from our friends at Universal. And uh, Sid Talk will give you the quick synopsis of Phantom Thread. No, I think you should. It's like The Phantom Menace. It's not. There's my synopsis. My synopsis is, it's about a man in the 1950s England who's a fashion designer, like a couture designer. And it is the story of a portion of his life... And a look into his... Hmm. Is this a synopsis, or is this just you telling us the movie? A look into (laughs) his psyche. That's the synopsis. Here's my synopsis. It's about a guy who's obsessive. And what happens when you're obsessive about what you do. I think my synopsis was better. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so this is the brand new film from Paul Thomas Anderson, my favorite movie director. So... Truly the favorite of them all. Of all movie directors. Yeah, I have no other that is better. So, um, and you you might say, well, you're just going to love this movie because you love Paul Thomas Anderson and you love all his movies. No, because I will say, Inherent Vice, his last movie, I did not love or enjoy. That is true. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I am optimistic going into one of his films, but I know that I'm probably not going to like all of them. So this one, Phantom Thread... I think Paul Thomas Anderson is back on form. 
What do you think? I I mean, I didn't dislike Inherent Vice as much as you did, but this feels more like it's coming from his gut. Inherent Vice, because it was a previously existing book, and a book that was, people said, there's no way that book could be filmed, because it is too out there. Similar to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which actually people said, oh, you can never make that into a film. And Inherent Vice, it, he did turn it into a film, but I don't think it made a, a whole lot of sense. It didn't to me anyway. Maybe I needed more drugs that day. What do you think? Do you think that he just took that one on because it's like, ah, oh, if anybody can do it, I can do it because I'm kind of weird and different. He's just a big fa- he was a big fan of Thomas Pinchot, the guy who wrote that book. Right. And it was a favorite book of his. It's a very like scholarly, intellectual type book. But yeah, I don't know whether he took it on for that reason. Like, you know, maybe it's a challenge, a super big challenge to do that. But um, it didn't work for me at all. Like, it was really messy. Did you not think? Do you think it hurts his feelings that you didn't like it? I don't think he knows. <laughs> but um, it was pretty messy. I think hard. for this one, it sort of like snapped you right back to why you love Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. Or The Master. Exactly. It reminds me of the master, more of it, like, Paul Thomas Anderson's really, like, progressed over time, I think. Um, You know, he started off with more commercial movies than what he does now. And he kind of, as he got older, got more and more into the artistic, you know, style of filmmaking, I guess. And the master, which was also set in the 1950s, had a lot of the feel of this movie, like, it felt you know, the way it was filmed, the music. So this one reminded me, it was closer to The Master than anything for me. And I really, really love The Master. But this one in particular being about the, you know, dressmaking business, I wasn't sure what to think. It's like, <laughs> you know, I was like, is that an interesting thing? Like, but it's not really about the dressmaking business. It's about this guy. And uh, should we go into spoilers in this review? And... uh Hey, he's your man. Yeah, well, there will be spoilers, so if you've not seen it yet, go and see it, come back, listen to what we have to say, or if you're not going to see it, listen to what we have to say. But um, it's just about this guy, and I was going to say, does it, does everything seem normal at the beginning? No. What do you mean? When we first introduced to him, does he seem off in any way at, at the beginning? I don't know what you mean. Like... There's something off about this guy, um, Reynolds Woodcock. He has got a social awkwardness to him, but he's in a position, he's in like a, you know, people worship him because he's this fashion designer, I guess. But uh, there's, if you're close to him, there is something a bit fishy about him, right? I don't know. I don't know what you mean. I think that... Hmm. I mean, you do There's nothing I mean. off about... Well, no, because there's nothing off about him he's just he's awkward he's he's like expected though socially awkward well we're introduced to a world where everybody's really snotty and really uppity and so he doesn't stand out he just fits into that to me and that in order to maintain that whatever it is his him he doesn't seem out of place in that i mean he's not he's not trying to be anything he is what he is right 
He's a, right, but he fits into that world of this ultra aristocrat. aristocrat type. Yeah, and like it's sort of like a high class to have this moody, intense genius making your clothes. You know, like that. That's how it felt. So he didn't seem odd or weird to me at all. Then again, I have known people similar to him, so he didn't seem that I mean, like foreign behaviors to me. I mean, one of the first scenes we saw of him was uh, his romantic interest at that point was kind of being dismissed like an employee yeah like uh, my romantic interest with you is done so goodbye kind of but in an awkward he, he a roundabout way he does it he's not straight up telling her that he's she's being told like an employee it's like she's clocking off now and then it, you know he meets another girl and this girl's slightly different i guess to all the other girls would you would you say She's bit, got a bit more about her. Like, there's a, a lot of these... His, not to his knowledge, she doesn't. No, not She's yet. She's just like find out. everybody else that he's ever eyeballed and decided, oh yes, here's someone I can work with. Here's someone I can mold. Here's someone I can probably draw into my little web and be difficult with them and then throw them away just like everybody else. Because, I mean, he literally is he's very... Um, I mean, it doesn't come off that way. We're talking about like it's overt. It's extremely subtle. There is none of this spoken at all. And in fact, it's like a 10 second thing where he sits down at a table, looks up and sees her across the room and boom, you're in. But it's as if he's looking at the same woman he's looked at 50 times before and he's going to cycle through it, this person, just like he does. Yeah, it's like from her point of view, we don't know yet. It's like a ritual. He takes her to his house. Yeah. He measures her for a dress. Yeah, he, there's like a grooming of sorts, but she makes it very clear from the very beginning. Whatever you do, be very careful. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's like the sign you're just like, right, she's not what he thinks. So that no. was to me like, okay, here we go. Because they kind of, we don't see all the other women, but you get the idea that he picks like a, a particular type Molds her to exactly what he wants, gets bored eventually, and then just tosses them away, right? That more than likely he picks them because of their body shape. Yeah. And because he can make a dress. or I mean, it just seems that way. That's also not spoken, but it just feels like he's looking for the perfect shape. Yeah, he is. It's, it's, and the, the problem with that is it comes at a cost. Yeah, and when I say gets bored and tosses them away, he actually, thinking about it, doesn't get bored and tosses them away. They irritate him in one way or another. Too much that he can't deal with it anymore. So he gets rid of them. Because, you know, this girl is kind of noisy while she's eating. <laughs> I mean, not... She, it didn't bother me at all, but... Of course it doesn't. It was overly, like... Um, this is where I have to say that I completely identify with this character. And it makes me feel good to know that someone wrote this character knowing... That there is a thing about listening to people eat their food and scratch their plate and cut their toast and gulp and swallow and all the little shit. It just makes you, it's almost like it, for me, it like it, it fills my head to the point of I can't hear anything else in the world. It's like the volume on those things go up so loud and it's not the sound. It's just, I don't even know how to describe it. And I was like, oh, I really like. I know he's psychotic and everything, kind of, but I totally identify with. Not him. really psychotic, is he though? But no, sorry, not psychotic. No. He's more like um, 
really picky, neurotic. neurotic yeah. yeah, and I completely understand. And so when they're making the sounds, I was like, "Yep, that would make me. That does make me crazy." I like how she she also <laughs> from her side of things where she said, "Perhaps you're concentrating on it too much." Like she questions him back a lot. Yeah, I like that about and her. And I think that is a thing that isn't normally doesn't normally happen because. Um, Cyril, she, when you see her face change, you know, at the table. It's like, how's he going to respond to this? Yeah, like, oh, wow, that's a new one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That she's answering him back. So, yeah, she's a bit more of a challenge than than the other ladies. And it develops into a, it's like an odd relationship, isn't it? Um, Each one need, each one needs each other. Definitely. Yeah, it's not. It's not very. Um, or it's the perfect relationship. You know, you have to use. You look at it through a different lens. Yeah, either that. It, I mean, it gets really. <laughs> it gets really uh, strange. It does go to a strange place. So, you want to explain the strange place it goes to? Are we doing the spoiler? Yeah, on we the strangeness? are. Yeah. Okay, the strangeness is if you haven't already read about this movie, that at some point. She doesn't like it when he gets a bit too uppity with her, like the high strung, fussy, like I'm working, you know, at breakfast when he's trying to draw his yep. sketches and stuff. And she just wants to slow him down. So as part of the kitchen uh, library, there's a book about mushrooms. And in that book, it tells you what's poisonous and what isn't. And the next thing you know, we're watching her grind up a mushroom that from the visual clues, we're pretty sure is poisonous. And sure enough. <laughs> He's been poisoned and becomes very ill, and she's there as the like the thing in his lens. We'll say like she's the one there to care for him. Yeah, and he's not aware of that. He's not aware of the you know what she's done. Nobody is. No. Um. But but then- she understands now that this is how I can rein him in. Yeah, and, and she- there's no remorse, and there's no like I'm. There's nothing else said about it or spoken. It's just that there are times when they have her look at him when he's doing something or when he's now making a dress for some other woman and she's looking at him and you're like, oh, was that mushroom thought going through her head again? You know, so you're never sure, but he's unaware of it. Yeah. So So starting out, he's fully aware that at any moment he could just ditch her. He could just be turned into his selfish prima donna self and turn off all the emotions and get rid of her right he thinks he's got a leg up when in fact she's the one that could literally just yeah knock him down in an instant so that's where i think it's an interesting dynamic kind of reminded me of um what's the one with i think it's ben affleck gone girl yeah is it gone girl or she's gone gone girl david fincher yes where it's like this weird relationship and yeah, kind of didn't put me in mind of that stylistically wise, but kind of, a, yeah, but th- this one is a poisonous relationship, literally, right? Oh, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you could, you know, she is, is she, is she the psychotic one? And is he the, like, you know, you don't poison somebody. That's actually, <laughs> go, that's crossing a line, isn't it? He doesn't do anything that bad. True. He's just an, a bit of an ass sometimes. You know, you know, there's a part in the movie where, you know, she's obviously being controlled by him and 
there's it's all very you know she has to follow the rules in this house and you know I don't see her as being controlled because she knows what she she knows yeah but there's moments where you can see that she's not into what's happening like when he's no, telling her that he, she's eating too loud or I got the vibe that this isn't her first time in the mushroom world or some other form of taking control of her situation. But That's she, um, the vibe I got. The part that I really like is when she decides that she just wants him, which is what she wants all along, really, just him to herself so she can be, you know. She likes it when sometimes he has an episode where he um, is out of commission for a few days, right? And Naturally, she, and she not, like yeah, not because of the poison, but no. because he gets all worked up, and, and then, then he crawls into bed, and he's all moody and shit. And what we would now probably say, well, he's manic depressive, depression, he has super yeah. highs, super lows, and in the lows, she loves that. She does because she. It's almost like Munchausen by proxy syndrome, but grown up version to grown up instead of mother to child. Right. That if I weaken you, and I care for you. Then I get all of you. Now, she's not doing it for attention from others necessarily, but no, she's in control of the situation. There are the times she feels like, well, he's with me. He's not concentrating. He's not saying I'm working. He's just laying there and he's just concentrating on her. So she loves that feeling. There's one time in the movie where she, <laughs> she, she wants to surprise him. And he's not the kind... Surprising him would be the worst idea, right? He doesn't it seems want, it seems like it, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to be surprised. So she's made him a meal and that whole conversation at the meal it's really tense and it he explodes a bit. As far as he he doesn't super explode ever, really, does he? Even when he does explode, it's more like with words and he's not like violent. He's just you know? really snotty. Yeah, he gets real hateful and you know, that's where the language, R rated language comes from. But that scene, I love that scene. That was my favorite scene in the movie where she thinks, well, I can have this surprise meal for him. But in the back of her mind, she's also probably like, no, this isn't going to work because everybody else is telling me that. But um, And it doesn't work very well, does it? I think she knows it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, again. No, I mean, I think she's hoping it will work. Again, that's the story, really, in a nutshell. And Paul Thomas Anderson movies... I know a lot of people get disappointed by his movies, including There Will Be Blood. I've heard people be disappointed with that because he doesn't have like a structure where there's a, like a proper ending to things sometimes. It just kind of fades out. Like you're, you've watched these people for a bit and now you're leaving, right? That's how it feels. This movie kind of feels like that too. You do go on a journey throughout the whole relationship. Um, but don't expect like some like Hollywood ending on the end of this, because that's not the kind of movie it is, right? But artistically, this, like all Paul Thomas Anderson movies, the uh, Johnny Greenwood did the score, he's from Radiohead, and it's all classical music in this movie, and it is almost the star of the movie, I think. The How it sounds. Do you agree? Um, No, but I understand where you're coming from. Like, that music adds so much to this movie, right? It does, absolutely. Because it's... It, ne- it never stops, really, the music. It's always there. Well, which, that's like Magnolia. Yeah, and like any of them. Um, Boogie Nights is the same, and um, Punch Drunk Love especially, where it the music is almost... Sometimes it's just percussion in the background, 
and it's building to something and you can feel the scene building to something and you can feel the music doing the same thing. It's not like an obvious cue as to what's going to happen. It's just there and it's sometimes it's irritating, but it's supposed to be. And sometimes it's beautiful, like the end theme, you know, what plays over the credits. That's an amazing piece of music. Like, Oh, yeah. Uh, if you, you know, it's an orchestral score, but it's just really like big and really adds to all the scenes. And it's that from the moment the film starts to the end, you're always hearing something in this score. So I really love that. And he's worked with Johnny Greenwood on all of the films, I think. And it's always a good move. Um, cinematography, he did it himself this time, didn't hire a cinematographer. What did you think of cinematography? Beautiful. Like usual, right? Yeah, it's, beautiful. Like it's, it, I'm not trying to use this word lightly, but it's sort of entrancing, <laughs> you know, like. He does a lot of long <coughs> shots, a lot of slow long shots where it follows somebody. And real lighting, it feels like, and it probably isn't real lighting, but you get like the the dust in the air on part of the screen where it's in a room in the back, and then there's really clear and crisp light coming through a hallway where the person's coming through, and it's all it all just feels really super well balanced. Yeah, and, and obviously the real star of the show, I guess, is the fashion and, and the dresses in this movie, which are all amazing looking, these dresses. Are they? I think they're really boring. I thought they were gorgeous, some of them. Really? Yeah. What's gorgeous about them? They were just, like, the way the light was hitting them. Are you sure you're not just swayed because it's Paul Thomas Anderson? <laughs> well, I'm I mean, not a fan just... of fashion and dresses, but I was like, wow, yeah, these but, dresses are I mean, they're beautiful objects, but it's not necessarily that they're interesting fashions. It's just very 40s, 50s, Hollywood I do glam. like that era, so maybe it's... Yeah, they look like Barbie doll clothes to me, because that's what all my Barbie doll clothes look like. Yeah, I mean... It's it's super couture, you know, fashion of that time. Um, and I, I just thought it looked amazing. And he, he does highlight a lot of the dresses. Obviously, it's about a man who designs dresses. So you do get to... When he's measuring her, that, that scene felt really creepy and weird in a way. What did you think of that? Say again. Which scene? The scene when he's measuring her. Yeah. When he takes her back. Um, it's obviously not creepy because she's there, Cyril, and he's doing the measuring. It's a little, uh. but it feels really intimate, and it feels a bit like he's almost crossing the line a little bit. Like, oh no, this like, feels like something he's done a million like times you're before. My, well, no, like <coughs> where, as every time he puts the tape measure on and pulls it down and does one a measurement, it's almost like close. I'm getting closer and closer to you being my property. Like each, uh-huh. each piece of. Each, each number that goes down on Cyril's paper. Once you get to the end there, that's it, you're in. And uh, you're booked in. You're logged in. You're mine now. That's how I felt that mm. whole scene was going. And it was, it was really like... And she was handling it really well. But then there was a moment where she was like, oh, what is going on here? Like, who is this woman who's just turned up? And what is really happening? But yeah, it's, there's a lot of scenes like that where they feel super tense and it almost... You want to be on the edge of your seat because you're like... What is going to happen here? Like, who, you know, is it? Because you don't really know either how far he's going to go. He seems like he's going to lose his temper kind of a lot, right? Yeah. But the whole thing feels that there's like a string of tension right under every single scene, I think. Yeah, but you don't, 
exactly know how far he's ever going to go or how, what this movie really is. Is this movie like a movie about a guy who gets to the end of his tether and goes crazy and starts killing people? Or is this just like a... See, maybe that's the trick because that's not what happens. Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't know, do you? I mean, at any moment you're like, this guy's just going to flip and something bad's going to happen here. So yeah, that's why I was on the edge of my seat because I weren't sure how far it was going to go. I didn't really know. I've seen the trailer to this movie, but it doesn't give anything away really. But you're also pulling a little bit of there. There will be blood because that's you right. know other spoilers. But his character, I mean, Daniel Day Lewis's character in that one, is a guy that you feel like constantly and rightfully so could lose his shit and be very destructive. Actually, lose his shit and murder you, kind <laughs> right. of guy. Yeah, but yeah, that's where I was kind of drawing from. I think. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson has done this kind of thing with Daniel Day Lewis before, so maybe it will go really far. But interestingly, it doesn't uh, go to the violent side of things. It goes to a more weird and poisonous place. My favorite scene is when there's, he's at the table with Cyril, his assistant lady or whatever she is. And she, he well, starts she's to, a woodcock, so she's... She's not a woodcock. Cyril Woodcock, she was called. Was she? Yeah. Hmm. Maybe that was his sister. That's what I thought. I, I thought it was his sister. Ah, Right. I mean, well, it's not. It's never clarified that she. No, and he did call her Mrs. Woodcock, but then the other woman answered yes, and she wasn't a Mrs. Woodcock yet either. Right. I thought here's separate from my favorite scene. I thought at that moment I was like, oh, maybe he's married to her, and they. This is just their weird thing that they do. I did actually think that. You know, personally myself. My favorite scene is when Cyril and him are at the table, and he starts to give her some shit, and she says, "You do not want to get into an, a thing with me because I will cut you down, and you'll be the one on the floor." And I was like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, <laughs> I've actually said shit like that to people. Don't start with me if you want a verbal altercation because I will win. Yeah, I can be hateful and horrible and disgusting, and I. I'm not proud of it. It's just that. And she said that in this really dignified, like, it's happened before kind of way. And he, he looked at her as, a, oh, yes, I, I shouldn't really mess with you. Kind of, that was the look on his yeah, face. Yeah, or like, more distraction. I don't need this yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is a good character study of this guy and the people around him and how they all, re- how they all um, adapt to him. Like, the whole... The whole place, everybody is pandering to him. Correct. They're acting like he needs them to act. Even his employees, these ladies who sew dresses, they're very quiet. They're very polite. They don't... Heads down, yeah. They don't ask him anything. The faces are down. You know, it's very controlled environment and all because of his And yet he's very friendly with them all. He's never abrupt with any of them ever. He says good morning to everyone. He knows all their names. But there is this unwritten thing where maybe something has blown up in the past. Yeah. Everybody just knows he goes crazy or something. But yeah. It's a really intricate character study, really, I think. And um, so, yeah, talking of characters... I only really listed three characters because this movie really does center around these three people. Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds Woodcock. So what is your thought of Daniel Day-Lewis in general? In general, I, I'm always completely in it with him. Like, I get it. I get his... The character he's doing comes out, right, as that person. However... There's also an extreme sameness through them all. And I know that he does the method thing and he tries def- you know, super hard for each 
man to be who they are. It's like, that's a personality. But when you watch them all and you zoom out, there's a, there's a sameness about everybody, the intensity, you know I mean? Their behaviors and like, this guy is much more subtle until he gets a little bit pressed and he's got different mannerisms, but there's still a certain, like I'm watching Daniel day Lewis be intensely this guy. Right. And I'm saying that's high quality. I'm totally into it. I think he's doing a fantastic job, but often I feel like I'm watching a stage play of an actor performing, you know, intensely, like right in front of me where you're just really aware that it's just a guy playing another guy. And He would be fantastic to watch, I think, at close range on a stage like that. I think it'd be the same. I think that's how he does it. Yeah, I'd like to see it really close up because he something comes off him to me that is... <laughs> Like lightning in a bottle kind of thing. He is pretty amazing. Um, Every time I watch him, I'm always... I do think he is probably very difficult in real life. Um, I don't know. I, I, My theory is that Paul Thomas Anderson writes these characters because that's him. Yeah. Partially him. <clears throat> I yeah. don't know. I don't know the man. I don't know his wife. I don't know their life. But often the idea is write what you know. <laughs> oh, you mean Paul Thomas Anderson being a um, very controlling person, writing a controlling person character? Yeah. That- Intense and like a little bit dismissive and doesn't socially quite click into all the things everybody thinks you should do because his work and his objective for each project kind of overrides everything else. Ooh, you're reading a lot into that. I am. I am. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, exceptional, in my opinion, in this movie. Um, I can see why he was up for the best actor. He didn't get it because Mr. Oldman did, but I'm glad about that too. So Vicky Creeps, who I do not... Creeps? Creeps. Who I do not know, actually. Never seen her before, I don't think. Plays Alma. She is fantastic. She is this movie for me. Fantastic. Yeah. <coughs> I, I, I think she like gave Daniel Day-Lewis a run for his money. Absolutely. Because, And again, playing off the same dynamic of an actor who's intense, a director-writer who's intense, and now this actress has to come into the situation where these people take this shit real serious, right? <laughs> like, super seriously. It'll be really easy to be intimidated. Yeah. But she has to be the one who has the upper hand on all of them. Because I, she does, ultimately. Yeah, I was reading it because Daniel Day-Lewis is one of those method actor type of guys. He plays the character and stays in the character, even during lunch breaks and all that kind of stuff. And she, I was watching an interview with her, and she said she never saw him as Daniel Day-Lewis. And now when she thinks about it and talks about him, she talks about him as Reynolds. <laughs> she met Reynolds. She didn't meet <coughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. She, she says like there was never a moment she ever socialized with him or, you know. Also... She never met him during rehearsals at all. And the first day on the set when he was introduced, that was it. She, the first time she'd met him. So it was the relationship. They filmed it in that order where she, you know, where she trips over in the, in the cafe. Yeah. That was the first time she'd ever met him. So I think that actually really captured something. It felt, did you see a blushing as well? That yeah, was like real. for real. Yeah, for real. Like it was, it felt really real that scene. When she tripped over and started blushing, I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's like somebody who's actually... Whoop. Or it could have been makeup as well. It looked... It looked um, real, it, it but it is a movie. Quick, like, it's yeah. a movie. Don't be tricked. I was amazed by that. I was like, wow, he's... Like, <laughs> um, 
he's hired somebody who can blush on command. <laughs> and then uh, finally here, Leslie Manville plays Cyril, and now she is also... Nobody in this movie is bad, right? I mean, they're all... Nobody's even not amazing. No, they're all amazing. And she is amazing, too. Like, she is stern. Oh, to me, she's the movie. She, she puts him in his place a lot. She, I can't wait till she gets on the screen every time. Yeah, she's very, like... I like, you know what I really like, where she's so perfect, too, where she takes her glasses off and she rubs her fingers on her, pushes her hair back every time. Every yeah. time she takes her glasses off. It's like, I have to look just right all the time. Like, it's, this world has made me into that kind of thing. Or, she's made this world, you never know. Hmm. Who, you know? She's who, quite controlled herself, isn't she? She's yes. very, like... Everything has to be just right, kind of thing. Who knows? He could he could have been like a wild hair, you know, but really talented. And she's the one that was like routine, routine, because she seems the type. So you know, we don't know that background story. And this uh, movie is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. I've said it about fifty times now. You will. Uh, some of his previous movies include Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, Inherent Vice. Uh, he's my favorite director, so Party. I will tell you I like him. What? Hard Eight. Hard Eight was his very first movie. Don't forget the first. Yeah. Hard Eight's um, weird. Uh, you can't... I've got the DVD. I own it on DVD. You can't buy it on DVD anymore, and you can't buy it on Blu-ray. It was never released. So it is extremely rare. Like, it's really... So if you want to see it, it's not on streaming services. I don't know what the deal with, is with it. Maybe, like, the production company or something don't... Some, nobody's got the rights to it. It's a difficult movie to track down, so I bet a lot of people haven't seen it. And that's why I usually miss it out in the in his list of movies. Anyway, he's my favorite director. I he's not your favorite director, I don't think. No. I don't think I have a favorite. But you do appreciate him. <laughs> well, I like the movies that I like that he's made. I don't I don't really categorize. I don't know. Maybe I do, but... I think, personally, I put him alongside somebody like Stanley Kubrick. You know, like an artistic... Director, Ameri great American director, who you will remember, like, many years later. Well, you might, because you love him, but not everyone likes it. So I don't know how memorable he is overall, except to movie snobs and people who love him. Because he's got that kind of movie that, if you did show it to a thousand people, and then you showed them, you know, Fast and the Furious 5 or whatever... Yeah, he's not a mainstream audience. So right. There's a very... It's like a, a hugest difference. No, he's... So not ever somebody... Most people in that group might be like, oh, God. Like, yeah. you read some reviews right before we started. People would like to have that time of their life back. Yeah. Well, those people are wrong. <laughs> so, extras on this Blu-ray, and that's... Uh, they're not normally any extras on a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but there are on this one. There's a camera test with commentary by Paul Thomas Anderson. There's a collection of deleted scenes with music from Johnny Greenwood. And there's the House of Woodcock fashion show, narrated by Adam Buxton. And then there is behind-the-scenes photographs from the film with uh, Johnny Greenwood's score over the top. Um, that doesn't sound like much, and it isn't really. They're like two or three minutes each. That's a lot for a Paul Thomas Anderson yeah, movie. Yeah, and to actually have Paul Thomas Anderson <coughs> talking about his movie. He's not really talking about his movie. He's talking about the technical... Um, aspect of photography really isn't he like the yeah the photography it shows you camera tests basically and he's telling you what cameras he's using and what it makes it do and how it looks and what they actually went with and then there's a really weird kind of 
Or would you call it an outtake? Or a ca- no, it's not an outtake. It's a it's a camera test, isn't it? With Cyril and um, Reynolds. Yeah. And they're having a food fight at, at the <laughs> table, and it's very. It's very not weird. like the movie. No. But they're in character, and there is a bit of a food fight. It's it's about the closest a Paul Thomas Anderson movie would come to a gag reel. It almost feels like a team building exercise yeah, between them. It does, yeah. Like, but not something. It feel it'd feel out of place. I think if it was in the movie, like you it, said, what it what is it in their minds that they want to do at this moment, but they will never do do right. that, and yeah. then just let them do it. <laughs> it does feel like what you yeah that drama class kind of thing, but it's really fun to watch um, and. Kind of intense in a way. So, um, yeah, thanks to Universal for the Blu-ray Phantom Thread. It is out on the 10th of April. And uh, I highly recommend you pick it up. What What about you? I think it's really... It's it's an amazing movie-watching experience. I would not recommend it to everyone. Uh, and uh, neither would I, being a bit massive fan of this guy and a massive fan of this film now. I wouldn't recommend it to everyone either. <laughs> but uh, if you are so inclined... And you do like other Paul Thomas Anderson movies, that kind of movie. Or there's like um, Malick and, you know, this sort of, or like um, Fish Tank and... Andrea Arnold. My recommendations, which I'll go ahead and throw out there, like Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, whatever, whatever. It's got that sort of like... Robert Ford. Yeah. And Lost River, which we watched a while back. But there's a certain, like, uh, unexplainable dreaminess about them. If yep. you like them, you may or may not like get into it, but it's got that kind of vibe. And my uh, recommendations are two, uh, two of um, Paul Tom Sanderson's movies, Magnolia, which is actually my favorite one, and The Master with the late Philip Seymour yeah. Hoffman, who is awesome in that movie, I have to say. And uh, it's highly recommended, The Master. It's the closest to Phantom Thread, I think, in style. Oh, I disagree, but there you go. This, the it's not dreamy fil- like this. Yeah, uh, the filmmaking style is very similar. A lot of, like, really up on people, real close to them. Yeah, but the vibe is very different. Um, I was just thinking the way it was filmed more than... Because Paul Thomas Anderson's definitely evolved. Go back and watch Boogie Nights. It's not... I mean, yes, it's artistic-looking... But it's not quite like Phantom Thread. It's more, yeah. It's more commercial, but still got an art feel to it. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, our recommendations for this week. Um, Phantom Thread, out soon. Games and A. Scully stuff. I've been playing some Far Cry 5 this week, the new Far Cry game. It is much improved over the old Far Cry games. What they've done is they've re- it's an open-world first-person shooter. And this time... Um, all the other ones have been in exotic locations, such as, you know, like the jungles and just real exotic places. Now, this one, this time, Far Cry 5, they say Far Cry 5 comes home because it takes place in Montana in America. And the the threat being in the old Far Cry games, the threat is usually some weird dictator of a country. And he's like gone apeshit and you've got to like make everything good again. In this one... It's a religious cult that have they've basically locked off Montana. The, the opening of the game, you're a new sheriff's deputy, and you're tasked to go into this cult's compound. There's the guy who runs the place, who um, 
is called like the father. He's like some. He looks very much like Matthew McConaughey. He's not him though, but uh, he's a religious cultist. And you're flew in at night. You go in with your bunch of deputies, and you you arrest him, and you take him out to the helicopter, and you're about to fly him out, and your helicopter gets down by these cultists with rocket launchers. And then the whole of Montana turns into like a locked down area and all the cultists come out of every house. And then you're stuck in the middle of this cultist place and you've got to bring bring it down from the inside, basically. So you're going around, you're like taking back settlements that they've took and you're eventually building up your good, bringing all the good people back to take out this cult so it's actually kind of scary, more scary than the dictator kind of guys that you're going after because they're kind of cartoonish. These people are like nuts. You can actually, you know, they exist, these people, right? <laughs> yes. You know, and, and the way the game's structured is it's a family. Um, the father is the, the oldest one. And then there's a, there's a daughter, there's uh, two brothers, and they all run different parts of Montana and you're going through each level. Basically you're, you're clearing each area and you're working your way up to take out the father who's like the big buddy. But, um, it's really good this time. It's, it's kind of, um, it's not, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It has some really silly kind of missions like GTA, like the side missions are very, very silly. Like there was a mission I did yesterday where, there's a testicle festival, and apparently that's a real thing. That's a real thing. Yeah. In fact, you'll find the post, the billboard showing up here pretty soon. Right. So around our area. So the mission's silly. It's like you you liberate this place, and there's a bar there, and the the people in the bar are like, we hate these cultists. You know, we had to fit in because they they take half of our takings and they threaten us all the time. But now you've come, it's awesome. So now what we're going to do to raise morale in this area is we're going to have the annual testicle festival and screw the cultists. Like, So you have to go and get some of the testicles from the cultists' bulls, obviously, and uh, it's kind of a weird scenario where you go to where the cultists' bulls are and Marvin Gaye's sexual healing is playing over the top of this whole thing. Think of that. Charming. While you're... Getting some testicles from some bulls. Um, I'll leave it at that. But I mean, it's silly. It's very. There's a lot of silliness, as well as a lot of real horrific, weird cult stuff. Like you go down, you go towards the father's uh, ranch where he lives, and there are people who are hung, drawn, and quartered above his thing, to, where he's telling you like, "This is what we'll do to trespassers here and people who don't believe in the Lord." And you know, they don't. They don't like shy away from. This is like some religious cult who believe in their own religion. No, it's the Lord. You know, they're actually talking about Jesus Christ and came out at Christmas. It comes out at Easter time and it's all very, it's all very weird. But um, it's really, it's really fun to play. It's a good open world. It's gorgeous looking. You even said that it looked, you yeah. it looked really, I mean, it looks like you're in rural America. And there are planes and helicopters and all manner of weapons to take these people out. These people are freaking crazy, so you feel good about taking them out. And you're the sheriff's deputy guy. And you can call in different people. I just unlocked a 
that I found a guy. And each guy has like a, all the NPCs in the game. They all have a story. And this one, I found this ranch. And there's a guy inside with his pregnant wife. And he's like, I hate this. We, we need to get out of here. Like, it's terrible. I'm like a crop duster guy here in this, you know, and I can't even take my plane up anymore because they'll shoot me down. And then you, he's, he tells you, I haven't even got my plane. They took it. So you have to go and break into their place, take the plane and then bring it back. So now I have got this guy on my side. And whenever I need a guy in the air in a plane, I can call him in. So like if I go up to a compound, I need to take it. I call him on the radio. He comes and he shoots everybody from the air, like while I'm kind of sneaking in. So there's lots of different things to do. I really rate it. It's probably, well, it is my favorite Far Cry game, and I have played them all. I just think the setting and the story makes it a lot better. Then it kind of went wacky with it last time with like a weird Korean dictator. I think they were trying to be a bit, you know, straight from the headlines kind of thing, but he was a bit too silly. This guy is like terrifying. So that's (laughs) Far Cry 5. It's out now. It's on PC, Xbox, and PS4. I'm also playing Gran Turismo Sport on the PS4, which is, it came out like at the end of last year, but I only just started playing it. Um, They didn't have, the problem with GT Sport when it came out and it got really bad reviews is it didn't have a single player mode. It was just a multiplayer game. You just raced other people. And as anybody knows about racing games, it can become kind of shitty if you're racing other people and you don't really like racing other people. Other people are... Most people don't want to race. They just want to knock you off the track. And it becomes really... That's irri- a bummer. Yeah, it's pretty irritating. <coughs> it, it makes online racing games kind of annoying. And they never have any longevity for me because I can only take it so long. They're just ramming you off the track. And it's like, why aren't you racing? Well, isn't this a racing game? It's not like bumper cars. So GTA... Um, GTA. Gran Turismo Sport was only multiplayer. And I wasn't even interested. I was like, probably a couple of days of that and I'd be bored. And I think a lot of people felt the same way. So in January, they patched in via a patch on PlayStation Network a whole single-player campaign, like Gran Turismo used to have, where you, you do a driving school, which I'm doing at the moment, and when you've finished and you get your license, you do a whole suite of races, you know, 60, 70 races. It's actually got that mode now. So if you were holding off playing Gran Turismo Sport because you didn't want to play multiplayer, you don't even have to now. There's a whole single player like all the old games. So, yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that that was patched in. And um, it's a very good addition because I wouldn't have really been interested until now. Now I can play it on my own. And the other thing, this is uh, not a game, but me and Sid talk over there. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm just trying really hard not to talk because when I do, I'm going to cough. Well, we went to see a movie in the theatre yesterday called Ready Player One from Steven Spielberg. And I will ask you before, um, so you can be quiet again. (laughs) How did you feel? Well, let's put it this way. I read the book Ready Player One and loved it a couple of years ago. Uh, I was excited for the movie to come out. And so that's why we went to see it. And you never read the book. But you do know some things from what I told you. Yeah, a so couple. How did the movie? How did the movie play for you as a not read the book type person? I wouldn't even consider the book at all, so that's irrelevant. So it was just a movie, and I had a good time. It's really all I can say about it. I mean, I thought it was fun. It's fun. 
it didn't do the thing for me that I can tell the book did for you and the other people who did read the book. And I'm just saying from your reaction to the book, this like flood of nostalgia. And as you read passages to me and stuff, I didn't really get that as much. It all kind of blended. It was almost kind of like Wreck-It Ralph where it had a lot of things. But then when you get to the part where they go to the gummy land or whatever it's called, it kind of loses its that. I'd actually compare it to Wreck-It Ralph quite a bit, the way it was. But I had a good time. Yeah. So that, I mean, don't get me wrong. I had a really good time. I loved it. I had a, to me, it's super entertaining and, you know, you have to balance. Today we saw a movie that I don't know if you'd call it entertaining, but it entertained me and it, it kind of elevates you for a minute and makes you like, oh, you know, think about things and you're kind of wrapped in it. Whereas an entertainment movie full on just sort of slaps you in the face and like good time and that's it. I mean, I'm fine with that. And um, as a fan of the book, Ready Player One, I um, didn't expect the movie to be the book. I never do. It's never. You'll be disappointed if you think of it that way, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, I mean, you just shouldn't anyway. It's stupid. Yeah, really I, never, I never do anyway for that. It's um, like it, any comparison of telling a story in two different forms, it, it's illogical. It doesn't even make sense. It's like if you want the book to be the book, read the book or... Become a really good director and a really good Hollywood person and go do it yourself. Or just think of them as two different things. The book will never change. No. The book will never change. And also things like A New Hope will never change just because you don't like later episodes. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous to me. People waste so much of their life on the bullshit. I think Steven Spielberg did a good job of the... um, I can see why they changed what they changed. Because on the big screen... They change, like, at the beginning of the movie, there's a big race. Like a like Mario Kart, basically. Like a big race race in cars. And there, that doesn't exist in the book. And I can see why they changed it, because it's more visually interesting than what really happens in the book. And it plays well as a movie, an action movie. And that race gives you the opportunity to put lots of cultural references. King Kong, you know. Yeah. All those things. The DeLorean gets to be the star for a while. The A-Team van. You know, the monster truck. It's... They're bit- done well. They're done well. I was totally like, oh, that King Kong was better than Peter Jackson's King yeah, Kong, to be honest. <laughs> um, and it made sense because when he solved how to get the key, which I won't spoil, that is an actual video game thing. It, it, even though it wasn't in the book, it felt like it came from the book. So I have no problem with that. And people are like, well, the first key was so much fun. But what actually happens for the first key is he plays an arcade game. He plays a perfect game of an arcade game. I feel, feel like that would not be that visually interesting. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, they do a thing in the book where he goes, it's about virtual reality. This We haven't explained. Ready Player One's a virtual reality thing. It takes place inside a, a virtual world. But they do a thing in the book where he has to go inside movies that we know and be the star of the movie and not mess up. So oh, that's the, the main part of the whole book? No, that's just a portion. One of the keys is... So that's the book. This isn't the movie. Right. In the book, he, he has to... But War Games the is the actual um, movie because of it, for obvious reasons. But what's the movie? 
is the important thing, right? Yeah, war games. No, the movie has no war games in it. No, I'm saying, so in the book, he has to go into a movie and act as the lead character of the movie and not mess up to unlock the key, right? In the movie movie, it's different. But I, I feel like what they did in the movie works for the movie because they used a movie. I won't spoil what movie it is. And the characters enter that movie, but they don't have to act as though they're in that movie. No. That movie's the play, like the level for them to navigate. Yeah, like, it's just happening around them. Right. Which makes more sense, because we wouldn't want to watch a scene where Parzival, our hero, pretends to be Ferris Bueller and, and acts out an entire... I don't think that's as interesting as what they did in the movie, which turns out to be... I don't know. We didn't see that version, but... But it turned out to be an awesome action scene taking place inside a movie that we all know and love. Or lo- most, pe- know. most people our age. We won't, we won't say anything about newer generations. Right. But as soon as that movie, you know, it, it was a, an amazing moment of cinema, that part for me. When that thing started to happen, I was like, oh, wow. And look how well it's done. Because like, it, they did it so well. Like, imagine a movie that you really, that you know by heart, you've seen it so much. And you're inside that movie for real, not in CG. The movie is there. But there are new angles of that movie that you've never seen before. You're like, what? I've never seen that room from that angle. But whoa. And it's it's not like I'm in a CG version of the movie. I'm actually in the movie. So I love that. I thought that was really, really clever and good. And the end battle scene, while it's full of references and stuff, it... I thought it worked. I thought it was really fun. You know? Yeah. The one thing that's changed from the book to the movie that people are objecting to, big time, is this. In the book, um, Parzival, our hero, doesn't meet, doesn't actually see Artemis until the very final page, right? Are you spoiling the book now for everybody? Well, it's a book that's been out for years, right? So right. he doesn't see, he have, you know, her physically never sees her until the end. In this movie, in the movie, he actually sees her quite early on, right? People who read the book, who said that that loses all that moment of the reveal of her. Right. But I don't think it did. I don't, I think it worked in the way the movie structured. It made sense for him to meet her at that point, you know? Um, but the thing about her, you know, I would have rather have been like morbidly obese or something. <gasps> what are you saying? Her, like, I, I think it was that shitty Hollywood thing of like, oh, she's got... So morbidly uh, obese would be the thing that everyone would assume is horribly unattractive. And therefore, if he loved her, that would be fine. Yeah, or like, she's got like <laughs> oh a, God. she's got like a weird, like, like oh. a, like a facial disfigurement that is actually more than what she has. You get what I mean? Like, something where you'd go, oh, she's... Yeah, you're saying if someone's obese, they're horribly disgusting. No, I just mean, like... Yeah, that's what you mean. Somebody who's, like... That you'd be shocked that he would fall in love with her. Or or, or how about, like, an old lady? Right. Because a lot of this Oasis thing is about, well, people we meet online in the Oasis. Who knows what they are on the outside? They even mention that a couple of times, right? Absolutely, because it's a it's a thing and it's a tool in the movie. So how about she's like a seventy seven year old lady, like or something like that? But she's not in the book. No, but she's more disfigured than she. Like in this in this movie, why not just match that disfigurement? In this movie, they don't match anything. She's a, a very attractive young girl, right? Yeah, she's got a 
She's got a birthmark that you can only notice if she lifts it and they zoom in on it, really. Uh, yeah. It's not actually that bad. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the part that where I was like, oh, that's a bit Hollywoody. The other thing I did, uh, as Hollywoody for me was um, the the ninja character. And, you know, the, the young boy and the other guy. Um, that felt almost to me like, yeah, it, it felt like Chinese characters for a Chinese audience, similar to the way Transformers tries to do that too. It feels really condescending a little bit. It's like, hey, China, um, or those parts of the world, Asia, you know, you're in our movies too, but you don't get a proper part. You're just like a small, like... Yeah, but how is it? I mean, the story is written in a way that they are what they are. Yeah, they are. They are actually in the book, those two guys, but it, they didn't really flesh them out much. And right. they're a big part of the book. Like, I mean, you you didn't really get much chance to know them, I don't think, in this. But I really liked it as far as... Somebody put it really well yesterday to me. They said they um, loved the book, so therefore they really like the movie. Like... Because you can never level them. It'll never be level with your imagination versus something that somebody puts up there for you to look at. It's never going to really match. I don't know. I mean, it never has in my entire life, so, you know. I do like Ready Player One. Let's face it. It's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but the virtual reality version. I mean, come on. Right? (laughs) That's what it is. I mean... There's no denying that. But it's just Steven Spielberg did it really well, I think. It's a big, epic movie that is a lot of fun. It does have that kind of Spielberg ending, did you not feel? Oh, yeah. God, yeah. It just felt very, oh, oh it's real It was very nose. of its time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, but it is a lot of fun. Just don't, if you've read the book, just forget the book. This is a movie. It's not the book. Correct. Always think that way. But I did enjoy it. I I, I won't fault it, because I thought it worked well as a screenplay. Plus, Ernest Klein wrote this screenplay, remember, people? <laughs> this is the guy who wrote the book. He wrote the screenplay. It's his so. story. He can do what he wants. <laughs> yeah. Just like midichlorians, they can do what they want. They and wrote it. I think they did a fine job. I liked everybody who was in it. And I, I didn't come out going, oh, God, I'm picking it apart, because there was plenty to love. So... That's Ready Player One. We'll actually review it on Blu-ray in a few months when it comes out. Talk about it more in depth then. But suffice to say, I enjoyed it. And so did you. Yes, I did. So what is for dinner today? Tonight will most likely be something ordered and delivered and or driven through. Because I really don't want to make anything. Pizza, did you say? Pizza sounds kind of good, actually. Yeah, it does. Okay, pizza it is. It'll be Papa John's. Because I already have an account and I can that's just go click it. And I mean, that's the best one, right? I haven't had pizza in a while, and I can't really taste anything, so I'll just get something plain, you know. Your pizza will taste like snot anyway. All I've, all I've had all day is soup. So. Snot pizza. And when I'm having snot pizza, don't gross everybody out. And what's your advice? Uh, My advice Keep it short so you don't cough. It's very short. <laughs> <laughs> um, this movie brings it up, and I'm not saying this movie's version of this relationship is a positive, healthy relationship, obviously. However... We don't all live or want or need a fictional kind of romance. You know, we're just creatures on the planet. We bond with each other in one way or another. Parent, child, child, parent, friends we meet, spouses we meet. 
but we don't need to live in fictional romance. Like everything doesn't have to be like, you know, when you watch this story and you're like, well, there's no way that's not love. I don't disagree with that. But if two people are effed up enough, <laughs> I mean, stick with each other, way, right? They both fit each other. So. I don't know what love is. I don't know that love exists even. I think it's just well, what, what we you. call this. I know you love me, but I don't know if it exists. It's not like a thing. It's just that you and I don't want to be away from each other. And I appreciate things about you that I probably wouldn't appreciate in other people. Or that I can't <laughs> tolerate in other people. See, I'm the person who has very little feelings. I'm either at the high end of the range where something just gets me so hard that it's like, ugh, just cuts me. Or I'm at the low range where I'm just like, nothing actually matters, people. Just get on with being alive. Nothing is emotional. Right? I'm I'm not like in the middle. I'm not wishy-washy. I'm, I'm... So we don't... You don't have... To, if you have a relationship where if you two go out and you don't speak to each other the whole time at the bar and you don't even look at each other and then you go home and you're both perfectly fine with that. If one of your friends starts going, well, he didn't even look at you. He didn't even talk to you the whole time we were out. You'd be like, so? It doesn't have to be the way that person thinks it needs to be. I think it's a part, a huge part of what causes a problem with people. And I agree with this character. One of his lines was the expectations of the other person is the problem. That's why it falls apart. He also said, I don't want to get married because I don't want to be deceitful and it will force yeah, me to be so. deceitful. That is a hundred percent accurate. And I don't give a shit who you are. If you're in a relationship, you're not a hundred percent honest all the time. You're just not. Because if the other person says or does something and you're just too tired to deal with it, or if it annoys you or you disagree with it, there's going to come a day and a time when all of a sudden you're hiding what you really think and feel. And you might think you're just being kind and, you know, it's better to like be kind than be right. All that bullshit. Well, you're lying. It's deception. And you've just built a relationship on deceit. We all do it. I'm not excluding myself. I'm saying that there, you know, that's the way it is. So I don't see love in this fictional romantic way. And so I think if people think, why don't I get it? Why don't I care if my wife dances on the dance floor with other dudes. I mean, I know she's not going to do anything, but all my friends are looking at me like, dude, you burn, you know, and her friends are bitching about it, but we're cool with it. So why do, why do I have to, am I doing something wrong? No. It, I mean, it depends on the circumstance, but I just think fictional romance is from poetry and songs and movies and stories that have been written since humans have been writing stories because we love it. Who doesn't want the idea of this love and romance and being the center of someone's attention? Ugh. Like, I'm not good at being the center of attention for somebody, and I'm not good at focusing all my attention on a person because I'm ultimately extremely selfish. That's my that's my one of my defining characteristics. <laughs> <laughs> Self-centric, egocentric, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So that's my lovely um advice here on this. Easter hot weekend, and it's not an April Fool joke. I'm just telling you straight up. <laughs> All right, so um, <coughs> let me remind you about our website, sayschoolie.com, sidto.com. You can catch us on Twitter and Facebook. You can catch this podcast on the Google Play Store, the RSS feed, which is on aschoolie.com, the iTunes Music Store. 
You can also catch this podcast on TuneIn. Go to uh, your Amazon device and say, listen to After the Show Movie Podcast on TuneIn, and it will play it for you. You can also catch us, new this is, on YouTube. Our last three episodes are up there, and this one will be. And email feedback to me at com. Don't email Sid Talk. And stay classy, Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm really looking forward now to see what's next. Uh As always. And I'm going to say think for yourself or someone will think for you.